The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the <coughs> people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be here with you this Thursday afternoon. That was a really powerful segment for those of you who were with us in the last hour talking a little bit about the blockbuster DOJ police report. Um, But this hour, I wanted to shift a little bit. And, you know, I hear my day job at the Center for American Progress. I work on a lot of issues related to women and families, as well as the economy and how, again, we make access and opportunity something real for people. And so one of the things that I like to talk about quite frequently are families. And it could be because my husband and I are the parents of three small, amazing little warrior women. Um, But I think most American people are watching kind of issues around childcare and education and they need help and have questions. And so we're going to aim to do some of that today. So if you want to join in the conversation, and I'm always glad when I hear from you, go ahead and give us a call. Uh, if you want to go ahead and do that, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you want to follow us today, we are doing Facebook Live. So you can go ahead and follow us, facebook.com forward slash the Leslie Marshall Show, or find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. So for this segment, I want to talk about a really great um, column that was recent re- recently released here at the Center for American Progress um, here by one of my colleagues. And I have him in studio and I'm so glad um, that he is joining because he is friends with somebody who I love. So I know he's <laughs> going to be great. Um, none other than Rashid Malik, who is the policy analyst for the Early Childhood Policy team here at the Center for American Progress progress. Welcome. Thank you, Michelle. It's so nice to be here. And if you want to follow the conversation on Twitter, you can find that at cap, C-A-P, early, ed, E-D. So the name of this title uh, first took me back because it's my demographic. So the name of the column was Black Families Work More earn less and face difficult child care choices. So we know that the child care crisis is an American crisis. In many states, the cost of child care for young children is more than the cost of rent. And while we often think, and in our next segment, we'll talk a little bit about the student debt crisis, um, We have some provision and we're having a national conversation about student debt, but we haven't yet shifted to have a national conversation about childcare in the way that we really should. Um, So last week you published a column along with Jamal Hagler, also a policy analyst here at the center, and you found that residential parents of three and four African-American children were working compared to just 63% for non-African-American children. Um, What we found is that today three in four, sorry, today three in four African-American children under age six have all residential parents in the workforce. So break down that statistic and tell us what you mean and, and tell us a little bit about those reports. That's right. So um, in the uh, early childhood policy community, it's this well-known trend that since the 1960s and 70s, we've seen uh, 
much higher workforce participation rate for women with children, for, for mothers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we now know that from census data that about 65% of all kids under six have all parents in the workforce and so mm-hmm. in other words don't have a, a stay-at-home parent mm-hmm. and um, and so we were wondering you know is that what are the differences by uh, race and ethnicity and and it turns out you know that for african-american children this rate is much higher um, you know like you said it, it's three and four and and I think that that um, that definitely in our mind comes from uh, the long uh, fa- long uh, held fact that African American women have always worked outside the home at mm-hmm. higher rates than mm-hmm. than other women, um, and so we, uh, you know, here at the at CAP, we we've um, Jamal Hagler is is uh, with Progress Twenty Fifty, which which uh, which uh, at by Twenty Fifty, we know that the U.S. will be. Uh, majority Community people of color, color. yeah, That's right. and so um, you know we can think about this cohort of, of babies and toddlers and mm-hmm. and preschoolers as as you know our 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 workforce of tomorrow, our community of tomorrow, and and kind of a uh, a peek into our future, you know, our demographic future, mm-hmm. and so we wanted to take a look at at what it means for African American families to face this double burden of having higher workforce participation rates for parents, but lower family incomes. That's right. So one of the stats that I thought was quite interesting from the report, while African-American parents are more likely to work, they earn 40% less on average than non-Hispanic white families. Black parents find themselves in basically an impossible situation. Child care is an urgent need, but they have fewer resources with which to purchase care. And to put that in context for some of our listeners, the average annual cost, this is the average, my friends, the average annual cost of that's my New York accent coming out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> of center-based child care for an infant and a four-year-old is nearly $18,000. And that's on the low end. That's not even looking what? at your... I know. That's how I feel every <laughs> single month when I write that check <laughs> yeah. for mild child care. Um, but when you look at kind of major cities, whether you're talking about D.C., New York, California, um, those costs are much more expensive. Um, and that that number of 18,000 amounts to about 42% of the median income for a typical African American family. Yeah, and you know, that's not an uncommon family composition, right? To have uh, a four-year-old and an infant. Mm-hmm. and Like uh, you? Yeah, like me. <laughs> I, I have an infant and a four-year-old and we we live in, in D.C. Mm-hmm. We have just astronomical costs yeah, yeah ch- for child care um, and so you know uh, f- and and in some parts of the country it's lower it's mm-hmm, high you know mm-hmm, like we said mm-hmm. the average comes out to 18,000 um, and and so it puts people in a really difficult set with it, it presents people with a really difficult set of choices um, uh, do you you know, do you opt for for lower quality care? Do you Mm -hmm. have to, in many cases, you might have to use multiple forms Mm -hmm. of child Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. Um, And and these these, these add stresses to 
to families that um, I think we need to really have a national discussion about um, because this is oftentimes during uh, young families, you know, very critical Early earning stages. years. Right, right, right. Um, they're establishing themselves in their careers and, and, uh, and you know, we, we have uh, recently published the child care cost calculator. Oh, um, and you remember from many of our listeners that we had, um, we did a segment on the child care cost yeah. calculator, which really looks in some ways as if you step out of the workforce, um, kind of what your overall cost, what you will be losing. And depending on what you're earning now, you could be talking about millions of dollars. Yeah. 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 And um, and it's it's very often, it's always much more than what people think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, because you might think, you know, I, uh, my, this childcare is going to eat up X percent of my mm-hmm. salary. Maybe mm-hmm. I stay home mm-hmm. and I just forego this couple years of salary. But what we've found is that the losses into your lifetime earnings mm-hmm. can be two, three, even five times higher than what you think. And and for African-American families that are on average earning, you know, 40% less than, than white families, non-Hispanic white families, you know, this is where, this is a potentially one area where we see this yawning gap in, mm-hmm. in lifetime earnings and mm-hmm. wealth accumulation. Mm-hmm. These, all of these things can kind of, um, can can get baked into uh, uh, real disparities between African American and and white uh, earning potential. So you know we are getting ready to we'll we'll head to one of the breaks. But when we come back, I want to talk about something um, that is connected. I feel like everybody talks about childcare as a crisis. I don't know any family white, Hispanic, black um, that doesn't talk about childcare. But what we haven't done is we haven't had a national policy to address it. And I want to talk about why and how do we fix that. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break with Rashid Malik in studio. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be here with you. Um, If you want to join in the conversation, guess what? Today you can go to Facebook Live and follow and watch along. And if you want to join in on Twitter, go ahead to at Leslie Marshall Show or at Michelle Jawando. So I'm back in studio with Rashid Malik, who is the policy analyst for the early childhood policy team here at the Center for American Progress. If you want to follow on Twitter, you can find at cap early ed. So right before the break, um, we talked a little bit about, and I started to set this frame that like, I don't know anyone who has children that doesn't talk about childcare being in crisis. 
Um, when I talk to people who are older and their kids are like in college or out the house, they're like, oh, I remember how crazy and difficult that was. And when I talk to people like us with very young children, um, for many of our listeners, you know, my husband and I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Yes, my house is crazy all the time. <laughs> um and, you know, we, we just figure it out. You, you cobble something together and you make it work. But my sense is if so many families are dealing with this as a personal crisis, why haven't we come up with a national policy to address this? Um, when I look at some of my friends, I have a dear girlfriend who's in Germany. They have figured this out in ways that we haven't. Um, my cousins who are over in London, they have figured some of these issues out. And they think about it not as just like a family issue, like independently. This is an economic opportunity um, issue. That's how they think about paid family leave and other things. Why haven't we figured that out here? I would say that I, I think it's um, it's another symptom of of our short-term thinking um you know we we like to have kind of quick fixes and this is a really strong guarantee of a law of of long run benefits um economists for years have told us that for every dollar we invest in early childhood we get you know eight nine ten eleven dollars depending on the study in social benefits and benefits that accrue to the children in their terms of their later lifetime earnings and a greater education and you know reductions in health care costs um, costs from incarceration and criminal criminal justice contact with the criminal justice system and uh, I don't think that policymakers um, have taken that to heart as mm -hmm. as much as they should um, you know I think now when we hear Donald Trump bring it up, bring oh, it up. Oh, goodness. You know maybe it's time has come if someone like him is, is going to mention it. Uh, I know. It was so strange. He actually talked about, like, child care. And yeah. I was like, uh-uh. You, you better not yeah. talk about child care. $200 million right. dollars at birth. Uh-uh. You yeah. don't have the right. <laughs> well, we have uh, a really huge generation of millennials that are... Um, just coming into their child-rearing family formation years. Uh, uh, recently, I read that it, it's a, a larger generation than the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is an issue that is very relevant to a lot of people and, and frankly, a lot of voters. We, you know, we here, I, I think, you know, we commissioned... Uh, a poll recent, recently of um, of women in four battleground states, women of color, and for them they they said overwhelmingly that uh, that these are issues like um, I think it was 73 percent of African American women said that universal preschool is an important issue for them and and would help people like them, and right. so and so this is something that voters are are finally. Uh, conveying to their to their leaders is, is important. It's something they care about. And one of the things that I often say, especially for my single friends, why you you care about these issues is this is where you see the wage gap and equal pay issues manifest themselves, right? So um, we're in studio. I have my fabulous intern, 
interns say hi to everybody on Facebook Live. Um, and one of the things that I have to point out is that if you start with a wage gap where you're making 64 cents to every dollar or 49 cents, um, that by the time you are um, of childbearing age or you make a choice to have a child and you've been dealing with the wage gap from that point, you have less resources from the outset. And that's how the wage gap becomes very real. It's both where you're dealing with issues around childcare or whether or not do you have enough capital to buy a house. So, you know, I, I often tell people that people think of these issues as siloed, but they're so interconnected, particularly when you talk about um, family issues and things of that sort. Yeah, and they span generations. This is a one area where it is not an exaggeration to say that um, th these are, are policy uh, areas that impact everyone from the youngest to to the oldest um, and so this is something that um, you know it might sound crass but but fact is today's babies are tomorrow's workforce that's right and um, and so we have an obligation um, to give them the best. I know I it's know, sad. I still but they've to got think plenty about of years. I know. They've got plenty of years of play ahead of them. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think we we can we can help parents, um, and we can help the next generation of parents. That's right. So Rashid, you have been a wonderful guest. I so appreciate you coming in and talk about this column. If you want to check it out, go to the CAP website. The name of the column, Black Families Work More, Earn Less, and Face Difficult Childcare Choices. And I and I will say this, you know, I care about this issue because I am dealing with this acutely. Um, it is something that my husband and I often talk about frequently. And I love the fact that I work at a place, and I'm sure you probably have the faint the same feeling like I work at a place that both looks at this research and says we're going to figure out a way to move forward with policies to fix this but in doing this we create opportunities for everybody so it's not just our families but it's for everybody else too yeah um and that's what makes me excited to come in to work here every day um because this is really an area who's whose time has come and I think um, there's 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 only Moving improvement forward. to be you know to come that's right you're listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall show uh, that was my great guest Rashid Malik in studio we'll be right back after the break talking student loan debt uh oh but here we go this is the Leslie Marshall show Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawanda. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Coming in to our last half an hour of another great three hours here on The Leslie Marshall Show. Again, I want to give one final shout out to The Revolution from Asheville, North Carolina. One of our new affiliates joining The Leslie Marshall Show uh, family. They are at WPEK. Yay! 8800 AM. 
I'm so glad that you've joined the family. And as you know, we always have a really good time. We had an amazing show today. So I just want to thank all my guests. I'm so excited that I have become a millennial and joined Facebook Live. I <laughs> might have to get Facebook, though, to make it official. My intern is nodding like, yes, get your life together, Michelle. I'm sorry. Um, but I am really excited and thankful for all those who stuck in with us um, throughout the show. Really excited about that. If you still want to watch, go ahead to www.facebook.com uh, forward slash Leslie, the Leslie Marshall show. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Jawando. And I'm heading into another topic that affects me personally, student loan debt. <laughs> So I was so fortunate because um, my father, I'm the oldest of four, and my mom and dad said, you know, when you went through undergrad, we got you. We were going to take care of you. And I was very fortunate. I know that that was even a privileged um, experience because that is not the average case for most people growing up today. But when they, when I got to law school, it was hasta la vista, you better handle this. And I didn't really quite understand, you know, you take out loans, law school's incredibly expensive. You take out loans for school. You take out loans to live. You take out loans to eat. You take out loans to pay for your car to get to school. And when you get out of school, you find yourself with a massive amount of debt. I knew I was going into public interest law, so I was never making a lot of money. <laughs> and you're looking at this student loan bill, and then you almost laugh to yourself and say, how in the world am I ever going to pay this? So I'm excited because I have joining me on the phone is a good friend of both myself and my husband. Um, I have to give a shout out. Hey, honey. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Zakia's laughing at me. But none other than Miss Zakia Smith. She is the strategy director at Lumina Foundation. Uh, she tweets at Smith, S-M-I-T-H, Zakia, Z-A-K-I-Y-A. So at Lumina, she leads much of the work for the foundation looking at how do we develop new models of student financial support for higher education that work could not happen quickly enough she's also worked as a senior advisor for education for the white house domestic policy council really helping to shape the president's higher ed policy zakia smith welcome to the show Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> so glad to have you. And a friend of the Leslie Marshall Show and of mine, none other than Miss Maggie Thompson. Maggie is the executive director of the amazing Generation Progress. Generation Progress, I really can't describe enough of what they do. But previously, before she became ED, she was the campaign manager for our Higher Ed Not Debt campaign, which really was a nationwide, multi-year effort working to ensure that quality higher education is affordable and accessible two keywords to all without the burden of financial hardship you can find her on twitter at maggie m-a-g-g-i-e k thompson t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n welcome maggie thanks michelle thanks for coming she was like oh my goodness you did not tell me about facebook live <laughs> i would have had on a boat lip i, I was know, like I oh called you yes folks <laughs> like we really got you're beautiful you're beautiful so zakia i want to start with you because you had a really great piece um that you published this week i believe on medium um mm -hmm. where you basically talked about this issue and the fact that it still seems that policymakers just still don't get it 
So student loans have become uh, one of the top policy issues. But policymakers, I think, sometimes just don't grasp the the people that are struggling the most. So um, we've got programs to help people repay their loans based on a percentage of their income, right? So if you make really high income uh, or really low income relative to really high debt, you can now repay a proportion of that, which is fantastic. And President Obama has been a big um, supporter of that policy. Senator Clinton, uh, Secretary Clinton has as well. And you can even get it forgiven after 10 years of public service. So that mm-hmm. is fantastic. So all those lawyers with high debt can now have some type of public interest. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we still, we still have a lot of people that actually never graduated from college That's right. and have low amount, like what you might, you and I might think of as a low amount of debt, $5,000, $7,000, but they have the same job that they had before they enrolled because they never got a chance to get a better job because they don't have the benefits of that's their right. degree. That's and right. that's a huge problem that we really need to think more about. Mm-hmm. Maggie, more than 40 million Americans have education debt. So when you put that in context, there's only about maybe about 340 million Americans across the board. Of that set, um, we know that there's about a hundred million or so that are like uh, in that um, uh, who actually attend school. And so mm-hmm. then when you break that down, you got another 40 million of them who are leaving with education debt. And at 1.3 trillion, student debt surpasses credit card debt in this country and is second in volume only to mortgage debt. But the difference is when you have a home, you most likely have some equity. That's not always the case with student loans. Yeah, no, it's it's so true. And I think that it's the magnitude of the debt. You know, the average graduate is graduating with a four-year degree with over, uh, or right around, depending on your state, $30,000 in mm-hmm. debt. And, but to Zakia's point, that's for the people that graduate. And, you know, I think that in the last couple of years, we've made the point about the magnitude of this debt and just w- what a huge just drag on our economy this is. And I think that what we also really need to unpack is how this debt is really weighing down communities and also is reflected of structural inequality across our society. And really, you know, uh, a lot of the people that are struggling with this debt are people that maybe didn't have the opportunity to go to a high quality institution, maybe went to a low quality or predatory institution, people that maybe have lower debt amounts but don't have a degree. And, you know, some of the work that we've done has also shown that the student debt crisis and the people that are really in crisis is reflective of sort of a lack of mobility in our society. And I think this issue, more than any other, illustrates how sort of that pathway to the middle class is being cut off for too many people. And in many ways, if you look at where delinquency is, who has delinquency, and who has access to high quality, affordable, and accessible education, the student debt crisis is really reflective of structural racism Mm -hmm. and really holding down specific groups of people in this country. So I think that it's not just the size of the debt, but how it's affecting different communities in disparate ways. That's the crisis. And who it's affecting. I Mm -hmm. so appreciate you um, adding that racial mm-hmm. um, racial justice lens. And I know, Zakia, you often use kind of that lens in your work. Like, let's be honest, who is this touching mm-hmm. and who is it affecting? Yeah, I mean, African-American students borrow more than other students who have similar income. Um, that's, you know, reflective of wealth gaps. People of similar incomes, if they're black versus white, often have different levels of familial help and things like that. So you're seeing black students have a lot of student loan debt. Um, 
and and there's also a kind of a counter problem sometimes where uh, some students, particularly those that don't have any history with um, the positive history with using credit, right, are actually really scared of debt. Sometimes mm-hmm. when they should be. So mm-hmm. uh, when you're thinking about going to medical school, you know, you're going to take out a lot of debt. But if you're going to become a plastic surgeon, you pay it back and you'll be fine. <laughs> and a, and a lot of, we have a lot of low-income students, a lot of um, Latino communities often that are really, really scared of debt because all of the instances of debt in their families are predatory. Right. And we've right, got right. kind of two That's so powerful. problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're going to come back after the break. I literally may... I'm going to bring you guys back because I already have like way too much I want to talk about here. Um, but when we come back after the break, Maggie, I really want to talk about a lot of your campaign has also really targeted policymakers and try to push them towards greater accountability. I want to hear how that's going and what some of our great listeners can do to really get engaged in that. You're listening to Michelle Jawando. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Stay tuned. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 8886-LESLIE. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. So glad to be with you, closing out our last few minutes together. But we're having an amazing conversation. We had a great convo even during the quick break. And my intern made an excellent point. Um, intern, make your point. Mm-hmm. She's in the mic. Um. Oh, you're not on. Well, say your your, your point was. <laughs> oh, say it loud. They can hear you. They can hear you. Uh, we were just talking about student loans, and I was saying that it's so ridiculous that every single person my age, every single person that I know, all my friends, we are all going to be in astronomical student loan debt. Mm-hmm. And like Zakia. Like we're how do we how do we confront that? And you know, Maggie, please chime in because what you don't want to do is you don't want to stifle the next creative uh, Mark Zuckerberg, or mm-hmm. you don't want to stop innovation from happening, or people to take the risk that we need for American innovation. But if people are afraid and only go into certain careers that they know pay a certain amount, we, we begin to even when you're in college limit our opportunities and what the next generation looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to do a couple of things. The one, you've got to let people know, give people way more information than we currently give them, and do such so much of a better job than we're currently doing in counseling people before they take on debt. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you had this experience. I, what you described, Michelle, about going to grad school and coming out and be like, what is going on with this debt? <laughs> um, I mean, we, we actually did a study, and we were doing this experiment, and we fund stuff at Lumina, all kinds of experiments to try to figure out what works and uh, in, in keeping um, college affordable. But we realized that students actually never get their full debt amount until after they graduate or mm. after you leave. Mm. So each year you're taking on more and more debt. You never get the cumulative amount until it's all done. Like each year you don't have to do new counseling. You're like, do you know this is how much you're taking? And, you know? <laughs> um, and so that's starting to change. Like more and more people are aware of that. But 
the counseling that, if you can call it that, that we give people is just abysmal, and we've got to do a better job of helping people understand that. Frankly, we've also got to do a better job of funding higher education. That's Tuition right. Has gone Amen. up, you know, Amen. Amen. three times in the past, like decades, a couple decades. So it's a comprehensive approach. Yeah, and I think that exactly what you said, this is, you know, an issue where actually this is probably the only progressive issue where if we could go back to 30 years ago, I would say let's go back to 30 years ago (laughs) because it's not as if we're asking for something that's crazy or radical or has never been done before. Our parents had debt-free higher education. Pell had a lot more spending power. That's right. Uh, You know, tuition was so much lower. This is not a radical idea. And that drove one of the greatest growths in our country history. So I think we need to sort of not talk about this as if this is pie in the sky. The number of times that, you know, at running a youth organization, people ask me, do young people just think they're going to get free college that, you know, that that's just going to happen and it's going to grow on trees. And I, and this is, you know, often from baby boomers who literally their generation got, got the moon. Yeah, <laughs> free college and the moon. Right, they literally right, right. got the moon. They asked for the moon and they got it. So I think that we need to sort of you know, one, talk about the debt, because I think that there's a lot of shame and embarrassment about it. And sometimes when we do these sort of debt counseling sessions, people realize that they're not alone. And that's really important. And I think also just really disavowing our leaders who frankly are a lot older and and really did have debt-free college of the notion that we're asking for something that's unreasonable. So we just got a great um, comment from Dr. Hassani Madison on Facebook. Um, She and her husband are both uh, doctors, but I think this is a question that kind of applies to everyone. When you are considering marrying someone with a Mm. degree, you definitely have to have a conversation about what your student loan prospects are to even determine if you're financially compatible, which feels pretty awful. I mean, the fact that you're now dating and bringing this into Mm -hmm. the conversation, but then we make people figure it out on their own as opposed to having public policy to address these issues. Right, yeah. No, we have an employee who delayed marriage because they weren't going to be able to handle the debt payments together. And that's people are making real life decisions. It's crazy. I just, um, I'm getting married next month. Woohoo! <laughs> Put a ring on it. And you did. Yeah. Put a ring on it. Sorry. And I, I, when I first started dating, um, you know, my fiance, I told him, I said, I was starting a doctoral program and I was taking on more debt. I was almost done paying for my master's degree. I only had three years left. <laughs> and then I started a program and I was taking on more. And, you know, a all the people, like I study higher education and debt and affordability, so I knew what the consequences were. That's so right. I sat down with him and I was I broke it down and I was like, This is how much I'm taking out. I just mm-hmm. wanted you know right. that if we get married, like this is how much I'm gonna have to pay back so that you're going in eyes wide open and that's, that's the right. conversation people have to have now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in in our remaining minutes, I really want to talk about like how we push this conversation, because I guarantee you part of the reason this has been so difficult for reform is because the average age of most members of Congress are somewhere in their 70s, 60s. So when they were in school, school was dirt cheap and they you could work part time and pay your way through college because everything was cheaper. We haven't talked about the cost of inflation and how wages have continued to Mm -hmm. be 
suppressed for the last 25 years, but by everything else has gone up. Um, so there's an issue with who represents us. They're older, don't necessarily speak to the same challenges mm-hmm. that we're experiencing today. Um, so they seem like they just don't get it. So how do we push the conversation forward, Zakia and Maggie? Because like, we got to fix this before my daughters go to college. This mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And it's a crisis. It is. A, I mean, we've got to do something so that people don't feel like they cannot get a higher education. So I think it's got to be a solution with the federal government, with state. Most people attend public colleges, but also with institutions and holding all of these partners kind of accountable for funding higher education well and for institutions to do a better job in providing their aid to the students that need it and also holding costs down. That's a conversation that people don't want to have. I mean, college costs haven't, the cost of actually providing the education actually hasn't changed as much per pupil as people would like to believe. It's really a lot of it is state funding at the public level, but that doesn't mean that institutions don't have a role to play in trying to make sure that students are, are having affordable education. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that addressing the cost issues, I think it's similar to health care. When we were fighting for the Affordable Care Act, you had some people saying, but we have the best health care in the world here in America. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, higher education mm-hmm. is really similar for that sort of top tier of schools and that top tier of people who have the family wealth to afford it, who could not only get the student loan debt, but take out a second mortgage on a family home. That's right. For those people, they can access that leafy green four-year residential campus. Everybody else is sort of going to public institutions that have been woke hopefully underfunded, mm. um, or predatory mm-hmm. for-profit institutions, right. which That's are right. sort of, you know, were, were growing as public funding was decreasing. So I think really addressing that that issue, and to Zakia's point, using sort of federal funding as a seed to make states put money back in, because mm-hmm. 48 of the 50 states have disinvested in higher education since the, the recession. Wow. So we got to put that money back in. out yes. of 50 states. Yes. Disinvest, mm-hmm. Disinvestments mm-hmm. in higher education. Yes. Wow. So that's another segment. Uh, let me write that down. Um, and I, yes. you know, I, I, I just want to thank both Zakia and Maggie um, as we get ready to close out this segment for the work that you're doing. Um, if you had one minute to just tell um, our, our people who are looking and preparing, you know, you're getting ready to start school in a month. Um, what do you tell them if you can? Give me a quick soundbite. So I'll, I'll start and just say, you know, you've got to really um, look at how much you need to borrow. Um, some people, you know, really don't have a lot of resources to put toward college. Um, but, it, but just be careful about how much you borrow and how you're doing that. Also, think really strategically if you haven't made the decision on where to attend yet. Look at the data that's available. Look at the college scorecard. Um, kind of help. Don't, don't, I would, when I always, what I tell people and parents and students that are looking at colleges, the worst mistake you could make is to, like, have one college that's your dream college and I will pay anything to go there no matter what have options <laughs> mm-hmm. because part of it is holding colleges accountable for their outcomes and uh, what, they're, right. what they're charging as well. So um, I can't ask you to lobby because that's not what we do at Lumina Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> we aware of issues and uh, think about cost and quality and what we can do to hold our uh, colleges and states accountable. I appreciate that. Maggie? Yeah, and I would just really quick add, I think one of the most impactful things we've done with incoming students is not just talking to them about how much debt overall they're going to have when they leave, but look at the repayment plans. There's mm-hmm. an easy calculator on the um, Department of Education site and crunch out what your monthly payment's going to be. Because mm-hmm. that, especially if you are a younger student that's just going to college for the first time, maybe your parents didn't go, crunching that monthly payment on the front end is a huge motivator and I, will really be important 
for you going to the right institution. And I think also planning out so that you finish on time. That's we right. talk to a lot of students that um, for whatever reasons, and often it's family obligations and mm -hmm. often it's cost itself. They have to go and work for a while so they can pay tuition the next semester. But if you can map out a plan so you can finish on time, that will help immensely. <sighs> Zakia Smith, Strategy Director at Lumina Foundation, Maggie Thompson, ED, Executive Director of Generation Progress. You two have been amazing guests. Um, it was wonderful to finish out another great show on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando. Always love being here. And I will speak to you all soon. Be safe. Enjoy. And you know what? Hug somebody. I don't think we hug enough people. That's, people are so mean these days. <laughs>